family. Why is it that some of our biggest struggles in our life are with our family? The, the things that we work through and deal with and, and, and wrestle with, that, that, that the hurt that come from family, the disappointment that come from family, the challenges that come from family. And, it's, and it's the same thing, it's the same issues, pride and envy and jealousy and anger and all of those same emotions that we deal with with our friends and our acquaintances. But why is it with family, it is so much more hurtful and so much more painful? And I think it's because they know us the best. They, they know how to push our buttons. They know how to challenge us. They know how to aggravate us. They know how to hurt us like no one else. And the disappointment that comes from family members is just that much greater than what it is when it's our friends. You know, and I know this all too well. I grew up with a childhood that was a miserable mess. My parents got pregnant with me, unmarried, when I was uh, when they were 16, and had a, my brother, which is 16 months younger than I, shortly after that. And they were completely ill-equipped to be parents. And the way that they dealt with the stress in the house was they took it out on my brother and I and each other in verbal and physical and mental abuse. That's what they did. The tension was so thick in our house that it, that it clung to the ugly yellowed wall, flowered wallpaper in our kitchen. I can still see it today. You know, I watched my dad race his car towards my mother as she threw rocks at him. My mother, my father pulled out of the driveway so many times with threats that we quit wondering whether he was going to come back or not. And it was this sort of stuff that really marked my childhood. And I told you before, I shared with you, my grandfather committed suicide and we watched my grandmother turn into a shell of her former self. And there's so much hurt and pain in our family that even after that happened, there was a period of time when my mother and father refused to let my brother and I speak to my grandmother. And I don't even want to talk about the conditional acceptance from my parents was a constant struggle. And do you know to this day that I have a father that still refuses to speak to me? He doesn't even know his four grandchildren. And this result in my life was a bitter spirit and an uncanny ability to hold a grudge. The inability to forgive, the inability to get over the hurt, resentfulness, were all things that marked my early life into my adulthood. And I got so tired of the emotional hurt and the baggage that I essentially checked out of my family when I was about 15 years old. And I just walked away. And if you have been in a similar situation, you know that that hurt is deep. You know that it isn't easy to get over much less think that something good actually can come out of it. But you know what? That is what James writes to us. 
in one of the most practical books in the New Testament. James chapter one, verses two and four. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trial of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, the point of this verse is really straightforward, is that God does not waste a moment of our time. That regardless of what path that we are on, that's the path that God placed us on. And the purpose of us being on that path in our life is for God to draw us closer to himself. And through faith in him, through courage and strength that we find in that that, 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 that situation, we can find the strength to push forward and to move ahead and to realize that God is working all things for our good. And that's what Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter eight, verse 28. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we see this very thing play out in the life of the last of our unlikely heroes, Joseph. That despite the, the very dark and really disturbing times in his life, which came at really the hands of his family, God ended up using him in a mighty and powerful way in his plan to save his people. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Chapter 37 is where we're going to start. And while you're doing that, I want to um, set a little bit of context. So like me, Joseph had some junk to deal with in his life. And his junk starts back with Abraham. Okay, so Abraham is his great-grandfather. So we know that ultimately Abraham ended up being this great man of faith, right? We know that, that he, when God told him to go, he went. When God told him he's going to sacrifice his son, he stood willing and ready to do so. But he got tired of waiting on a child and Sarah offered up her maidservant, Hagar. And they end up having a son, who knows what his name is? Ishmael, right? And through the generations, what, what religion comes from this line of Abraham? Islam. Now on the other side, his wife Sarah, you know, God blesses them at um, 99 years old, and they have a son, Isaac. Okay, then Isaac and Rebekah, I am sorry for my handwriting. I thought after three services, this would be better, but. but they have two sons. Who are they? Jacob and Esau. Esau was first. So some of the dysfunction starts to get a little worse here, right? Because Esau was first and he was entitled to the birthright coming from Isaac. But what happens? Rebecca and Jacob plot together and steal the birthright from Esau. Okay, so he got some issues going on here in his family. And then Jacob decides to really take it to a whole new level of sketchiness. And what does he do? He ignores God's command in Genesis 2 that defines marriages between one man and between one woman. And what does Jacob do? Jacob goes out and marries a set of sisters. He marries Leah and he marries Rebecca. I'm sorry, Rachel. 
And not only that, that wasn't good enough. He married her maidservants. Bilhah and Zilpah. And between those four women, he has 12 children. Rachel's the one he loved the most. Here is where Joseph lands and then his younger brother, Benjamin. And through here, through these 12 kids, these were the tribes of Israel when they ultimately ended up landing back in Canaan. Joseph ends up going to Manasseh and Ephraim, but that's a whole nother story. But, but that is what's going on in this family. So we, we see all of this, this stuff going on. It's just, it's not, this stuff looks like it should be on a, a daytime talk show on what's happening here. So as a result of all of this stuff going on between parents and siblings and deceit, we see a family that is ridden with, with, with poor parenting, with disobedience, with drama, with strife. And that's what is going on. And let's look at the first couple verses in chapter 37 to see what's going on here. Chapter 37, verse two. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. This is, for you new parents, this is lifted straight out of the book of how not the parent, right here, right? So we got Jacob using Joseph as a snitch, going out in the field to tell him what his brothers are doing to come, or not doing for that matter, to come back and to tell him. Then on top of it, Joseph loves, uh, Jacob loves Joseph more. Right, even to the point, we know that's not good news. And then to make matters worse, he makes them this beautiful robe and gives it. So it's just this constant reminder to the brothers on, on how, how much more he is loved. And this, this, his, his, his disobedience and this lack of judgment is just starting to, to breed this resentment and hate deep inside of this family. And if that's not enough, Joseph has his dream. And Joseph tells his father and tells his brothers, hey, not only am I great now, I'm even gonna be greater later. You guys are all gonna bow down to me. Well, that just sends them over the edge. They said, that's it, we are done with you. And they plot that they're gonna kill him, they're gonna throw him into a cistern, they're gonna take his robe and, and, and put blood on it, and trick his father to tell him, you know, show his father that he is dead. So they have proof, proof that he is dead and Jacob can get on with his life and love them more than that. So they, they all agree on this plan, except Reuben. Reuben says, you can't do that to him. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw, them, throw him into the cistern alive. Because Reuben's plan was, when these guys leave, I'm going to come back and I'm going to rescue Joseph because he didn't want anything to happen to him. So they put this plan in place. Joseph, as he's coming on one of another spy missions to look on them, they seize their opportunity. They take Joseph. 
they throw him in, they take off his robe, they throw him into the cistern and they leave him there. And then if that's not bad enough, they're sitting around chit-chatting over lunch with him in the cistern and say, you know what? That's not good enough that he's in there and will eventually die. We're not profiting from this in any way whatsoever. So they come up and say, you know what? They see this pack of Ishmael, Ishmaelites coming through and say, let's sell them into slavery. So they pull them up out of the cistern and they sell them into the slavery to the Ishmaelites. And off Joseph goes. And this is all behind Reuben's back. Reuben comes back and Joseph is gone. So they take the robe, they, they take a goat, kill the goat, take the blood, splash the blood on the robe, and they take it back to Jacob. Now, Jacob is inconsolable. Jacob is distraught that he lost his beloved son to his most beloved wife, Rachel. I find it funny that here, we talked about, right, Jacob and Rebekah tricked Isaac for the birthright by using what? A goat. And what's being used here now to trick Jacob? A goat. I love how God works those pieces together. So let's take a little survey of our mess that we've got going on. Number one, we've got a father who's grieving, who believes that he lost his favorite son in the world. We've got brothers lying to the father. We've got brothers infighting with themselves. They don't even know how to dispose of Joseph. And if we read actually out in verse four, uh, chapter 42 a little bit later, we know that there's, a, there's some guilt going on with what they did with Joseph. And now we haven't even talked about Joseph at this point, right? And we get a little glimpse again in chapter 42 that, that Joseph, that scripture says that he was distressed and he pleaded for his life. Now for Joseph, this is clearly a low point for him. He was the favored son. He had an ornamented robe. He was living the life. And he's now separated from his father. He's separated from Benjamin, his younger brother that he loved. He's sold into slavery, living in a foreign land. Because I know how poorly I dealt with the circumstances of my life. I can't imagine what is going through Joseph's mind at this point in his life. But God was working. Chapter 39, verse two. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he had owned. So through God's providence, Joseph was picked out of, up out of Canaan, betrayed by his family, thrown in a cistern, sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites, resold into slavery to the Egyptians, and placed in the house of Potiphar, who was the head of the guard for Pharaoh. Only God could do that. And on top of it, it said everything he did was successful. 
Everything he did was successful. And more importantly, he says, God was with him. And guys, that's one of the things I want you to remember from today is that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how bad we think things are, God is always with us. It is easy to say God's with us when the times are good, but when things are tough, just like Joseph, you're sold into slavery in a, fallen, in a foreign land, it's a lot harder to realize and recognize that God is with you in that because it's easy to think that he's abandoned, abandoned you to put you in that situation. So no matter how things, how bad things are for us, God is always with us. So this crazy ride for Joseph ends up okay, huh? Everything's hunky-dory. He's serving in Potiphar's house. Everything's going great. Well, not so fast. The trials that Joseph will face are far from over. And how is it, why is it, that some of the most significant trials that we have come on the heels of our most greatest successes? And maybe it has something to do that our successes have something to do with us. Check this out. So everything's great for Joseph at this point. Everything he touches is gold. Everything he does is good. But there's a hitch in the giddy-up. And that hitch in the giddy-up is Potiphar's wife. Because Potiphar's wife is taking notice of the success that Joseph is having. And it says, the scripture says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. So Potiphar's wife has her eye on him and wants Joseph to sleep with her. Verse 8 and 10 in chapter 39. So after she approached him, it says, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master was withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Can you imagine the temptation facing Joseph at that point? Sure, there, there's the physical temptation, right? He's a man and she's a woman. We get that. That's pretty easy. But can you imagine the emotional temptation that Joseph had? Right? This is a guy that was abandoned from his family. This is a guy that was forgotten in a foreign land. And here is somebody that has shown interest in him. Somebody that appreciates what he's doing. Right? So you can almost sense maybe a, there's this acceptance piece of it. So there's a physical aspect, but there's this emotional side as well that he could have very easily fallen into this temptation. He was ripe for the picking. Foreign land, no support, no one around him. And here comes this woman after him. But his faith in God trumped all of that temptation. See, Joseph understood that his sin would hurt Potiphar, sure. But more importantly, that that sin would ultimately be against God. And I think it is remarkable 
that given his circumstance, given his family history, given what he had been through, that he was able to look at her repeatedly and say no, and to walk away. In fact, he wouldn't even be around her. And I think that's the other thing I want to leave. Another thing I want to leave you with today is that when we are faced with temptation, God gives us a way out. See, our circumstances, our family gene pool, how bad things are, how lonely you are, how desperate you are, are never, never a reason to give in temptation. God always gives us a way out. And this is exactly what Paul wrote to the people in Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. See, Joseph was a man of integrity that in that desperate time in his life, he relied on God and did not give in to his sinful desires. So we all know the saying, there is nothing worse than a scorned woman. Well, Potiphar's wife was now scorned because Joseph refused her. So Potiphar's wife turns to Joseph or um, Potiphar and says, this man has attacked me. And you can imagine Potiphar's response is not pleasant. And Joseph's ride to success in Potiphar's house comes to a screeching halt and he finds himself in jail. But again, in that situation, God is at work. Stay in chapter 39, look at the last part of verse 20 into 21. It says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. You go on to read, it says, ultimately, Joseph ended up not just being a prisoner, he ended up being in charge of the whole prison. He ended up being in charge of everybody. And in his job and walking around or whatever it is what he was doing, he noticed two prisoners that were thrown in there by Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker. And he sees these downtrodden face on a cupbearer and a baker, and he's concerned with this, why the long face? Well, we got these dreams and we can't interpret them. And Joseph tells him he's this gift through God. You'll see this whole dream um, motif throughout the whole story of Joseph. Says, why well, can interpret them? And he goes and interprets these dreams. And after he does, Joseph says to them, hey, just, would you remember me? I'm stuck in this prison. Would you get back to see Pharaoh? Would you just let him know what I did? Well, of course they didn't. But two years later, Pharaoh has some dreams. And he wants them interpreted and no one can interpret them. Then the cupbearer remembers, hey, that guy in prison, Joseph, he interpreted ours correctly. Go get him. So Pharaoh summons for Joseph in prison and Joseph comes and improperly interprets these dreams. So he tells Pharaoh, listen, here's what they say. The first dream is a promise that there's gonna be seven years of abundance in Egypt. But following those seven years, there's gonna be seven years of famine. So he's telling us, listen, these, this is from God. 
So in this time of abundance, you better manage it well so you can survive through the period of famine that's gonna follow. And you should put somebody in charge to do that. Well, Pharaoh does. And who does he choose? Joseph. Only God could do that. Joseph is 30 years old at this point. So 13 years have lapsed from the time he was thrown in the cistern to right here. Only God being involved in this. Can you put the pieces together from betrayal by family, thrown in the cistern, sold into slavery, to the heights of Potiphar's house, in the jail, to interpret a dream to be placed under Pharaoh? Is the second in charge. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. That means Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world. So as predicted... This happens. So the abundance happens, the famine comes, and because of Joseph's management skills and the way that he um, was faithful to, to Pharaoh, the Egyptians did great. But the land surrounding them did not, and this included Canaan back where his family was. They were suffering mightily. So Jacob says, we don't have any food, the Egyptians do, so I'm gonna send you boys down to Egypt to go buy some food. But I'm not, right, there's 11 of them now because Joseph's over here. But I'm not sending all 11 of you, I'm gonna send 10 of you because I'm keeping Benjamin back because I can't think he's the last son I have to my beloved Rachel. Something might happen to him if I send him down there, so I'm gonna keep him. So he sends the, the 10 boys now off to Egypt to go buy the grain. And lo and behold, they show up in Egypt to buy the grain. And who do they find themselves in front of to buy the grain? Joseph. Joseph certainly recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph keeps it a secret. And then Joseph remembers a dream that he had before and says, well, hold on a second. You guys are here to spy on us. You're here to find out where the weaknesses are in our, um, around us so you can come in and steal our grain. And they're like, no, no, we're not. And he's like, yes, you are. So there's this interaction going back and forth between Joseph and the boys. And now the boys start talking in front of Joseph together. So they're speaking in their native tongue, which would have been Hebrew. Joseph, which I find so interesting, the scripture says Joseph used an interpreter to understand what they are saying. So you can only make the inferences. Joseph forgot his mother tongue after, seven, after 13 years of being out of Canaan. So through this interpreter, Joseph is listening to what this conversation is going on in front of them. And we see this in chapter 42, verses 21 and 22. So the, these boys in front of Joseph, they said to one another, Surely we, are being, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. I love Reuben's reply here. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against that boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we have to give an accounting for his blood. So this exchange that happens in front of Joseph makes Joseph emotional. It gets to him. 
And he has to do a point where he has to turn away and to conceal it from him. So we know even 13 years later, there's still this angst or this pain that's inside of him to turn away to see what is going on. But as he composes himself and turns himself around, he said, listen, you guys got to prove to me that you are not spies. You got to prove to me that you're not here doing what I think you're doing. So I am going to keep Simeon with me and you need to go back to Canaan and go get this younger brother, Benjamin, that you're telling me about, right? Because Joseph wanted to see him to make sure they came back. So they load up the grain, give them the grain, actually gives them their silver back, and they go back to Canaan. Well, now we're not a nine sons. So you can imagine Jacob's response, right? The disappointment. One of the sons are gone. And so the boys tell Jacob, hey, we got to go back. We got to take Benjamin with us because they think we're, they think we're spies and we've got to go, we got to go resolve this issue. And Jacob's like, no way. I am not sending Benjamin back to Egypt. I am not risking the child of my, uh, my beloved Rachel. I'm not doing that. Well, lack of food sometimes gives us a clarity of thought. <laughs> they run out of grain and Jacob finally acquiesces and sends the boys back to Egypt. And we, as, we, as we look in here, so they're coming off, Joseph sees them coming. And as they approach, Joseph tells his attendant to take them to his house. And at dinner, the half-brothers pre present Benjamin to Joseph. And look what happens in chapter 43, verses 29 to 30. As he, talking about Joseph, looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is, your, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? Because remember, it's 13 years since he's seen Benjamin. And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. We can see the depth of pain inside of Joseph right here. He is so distraught over seeing his brother. The betrayal wells up inside of him. The hurt wells up. And he has to run away into the room and cry. Getting himself together, he comes back out, sits down and has dinner with them. They still don't know who he is. So he gives them the grain, puts the silver back in her bags and tells them to head off. But Joseph wants to hang on to Benjamin. So he takes a cup and he places it in Benjamin's bag. And as they're going off back to Canaan, Joseph sends his people and he says, hey, some of you, one of you took something that does not belong to you. You took the cup of Joseph and whoever has it must stay back with Joseph. And so they haul them all back to Joseph. They open up the bags and sure enough, Benjamin, the cup is in Benjamin's bag. 
And so this interaction starts. Judah's like, no, time out. You can't keep Benjamin. That'll kill my father. This is, this is, this is Rebecca, his most beloved wife's son. You can't have him. I'll stay. So this interaction is going back and forth between the brothers and between Joseph. And it became too much for Joseph to bear. Look at chapter 45, 1. It said, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard, him, heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brother, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Jump down to verse eight. Verse seven, but God sent me ahead of you to per, uh, preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. That is absolutely amazing to me. That through all of that stuff that Joseph went through, he knew that God was the one who sent him there. Just like Esther, just like Jonathan, just like Ruth, just like Gideon, Joseph was sent there for God to work through him and he was playing his role as an unlikely hero for God saving people's lives through him. And this is what I want to remind you of, that God also has a plan for your life to save his people. We are the same as Joseph and Esther and Ruth and Jonathan and Gideon. That God has a plan for your life and for my life to save his people. Now, Jacob ultimately ended up joining his family in Egypt and they, they settled within there with the rest of the Israelites and they prospered during this time of famine around them. And as Jacob was about to die, he gathered all his sons around him and he, he, he blesses them. But when Jacob died, the brothers got a little, little sideways because they thought that Joseph now would finally exact the revenge that they were due because of what they did for him. And they get to a point where they throw themselves at Joseph's feet and beg him for mercy. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 through 21. This is, this is amazing. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, I'm sorry, that's 15, 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and spoke 
kindly to them. What an amazing display of forgiveness. He was able to rely on his faith in God and the plan that God had for his life and push away his hurt, to push away the resentment, to push away the, the rejection. And he could see throughout all of that that God was working for his good. Now think about it. He was the second most powerful person in the world. He had these boys at his feet. He could have killed them. He could have sent them to prison. He could have enslaved them. He could have done anything that he wanted to with them, but he chose to forgive them because he saw how God worked for the good in his life. That's one of the last things I want to leave you with, that no matter how bad things appear for you, that God is working for your good. No matter how bad or how challenging or how disappointed, you may not like the circumstances of what's going on. But you gotta have the faith of Joseph knowing that God is working somehow in some way for that good. Just like I had to figure out for my childhood, God will use that for his good. Esther, Jonathan, Ruth, Gideon, Joseph, all of these people are unlikely heroes who had an internal, eternal impact that God was saving lives through each one of them. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning as I wrap up this series. That we've seen through the lives of these five individuals how God can use our circumstances to make an eternal impact for him. So five things I want you to take, one from each week. So first, I want you to know that you have been placed exactly where God has you, in the family, in your job, in your school, in your neighborhood, in this church, for a time such as this. God has work for you to do exactly where he's placed you, exactly in the circumstance that you find yourself in. And the best way that you can do that, number two, is by being a true and faithful friend, just like Jonathan showed us. Is that God's put these people in your life. And we need to be a true and faithful friend to them. That we need to have their backs. We need to empathize with them when they're struggling. We need to speak truth in their life and expect truth back. And we know when we're obedient in doing that, we know when we're true and faithful friends and we accept where God puts us and we move forward, we know that God blesses obedience. That we trust God for whatever he's placed in front of us right now. All we need to do is to take one step and trust that God is gonna figure the rest of it out. And you know how we can do that? Number four, victory is dependent on God and not us. 
That's how we move forward. That's how we're a true and faithful friend. That's how we accept the consequences in which we have today. That it's not dependent upon us. And then lastly, what we see today with Joseph's life, that we're gonna find ourselves in situations. We're gonna find ourselves in things we don't like, in things that feel yucky, in things that we wish were different. But we know that regardless of how hard it is, that God is with us, that he's working for our good, regardless of whatever that is. You see, that's the power and the hope that we have inside of us. That each and every day, that we can be an unlikely hero, like Esther, like Jonathan, like Ruth, like Gideon, like Joseph. But what about David? and Anthony, and Mark, and Jerry, and Terry, and Larry, and Tim, and Sally Kay. I want you guys to stand up. I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to tell them you are an unlikely hero. Now, more importantly than that, I want you to say it yourself. I am an unlikely hero. You need to say it like you believe it. I am an unlikely hero. And we can say that with confidence because in Christ alone can we be an unlikely hero and a mighty warrior playing our part in saving lives on God's behalf.